welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Jill Goldenziel, Associate Professor of International Law and International Relations at the Marine Corps University Command and Staff College and a Distinguished Senior Scholar at the University of Pennsylvania Fox Leadership International Program. We will discuss her draft article, Law as a Battlefield, the U.S., China, and the Global Escalation of Lawfare, which will be available to law reviews soon. So welcome to the show, Jill. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. So I really enjoyed reading this paper last night because it framed the concept of lawfare for me in a way that I really hadn't thought about it before. But for readers or for listeners who might not be familiar with the term, I wonder if you could start by just kind of explaining a little bit about what lawfare is and how we conceptualize lawfare in the context of international law. Sure. So the problem I identify in my article is that China has this very developed conception of lawfare and the US doesn't really have a lawfare strategy in these in the same sort of way and what i'm arguing is that the US really needs to develop one so i draw on both prior scholarship and events that have actually happened case studies of lawfare that have actually happened since the term lawfare was really coined in the US academic literature to develop what a US lawfare strategy might look So first, what does China say? China has a doctrine called the three warfares, which very much underpins its military strategy. And it evolves really from Sun Tzu's famous quote that supreme excellence consists in breaking the enemy's resistance without fighting. So the idea, which Sun Tzu put forward in the 5th century BC, is that The ideal is not to go to war at all, but to figure out alternative ways to attack the enemy's will. From 1963 or earlier, the People's Liberation Army has put forth the idea of these three warfares to underpin its military strategy. And those are public opinion warfare, what we often call information operations in the U.S., which involves shaping public opinion domestically and internationally, psychological warfare, psychological operations to influence foreign decision makers about China policy, and then legal warfare, which the Chinese term has been translated directly as lawfare. And this involves shaping the legal context for Chinese actions using both domestic and international law. And so this is really pervasive pervasive in what we've seen China do, both strategically as a government and through its own military actions. In the U.S. context, the term was really first popularized in the academic literature by retired, now retired Major General Charles Dunlap in 2001, who defined it as a method of warfare where law is used as a means of realizing a military objective. And at the time, what Dunlap was primarily drawing on was what's known as battlefield exploitation lawfare, which has been since termed battlefield exploitation lawfare, which involves primarily non-state actors then 
uh, he drew primarily on uh, Hamas against Israel, um, using exploiting the the their adversaries' law abidingness. So by doing things, for example, like using human shields, so attacking a building with a lot of civilians in it would be a huge violation of the law of war. Hamas knew that, so they made it really difficult for Israel to both abide by the law and then achieve military objectives if that building also had a lot of ammunition in it or enemy fighters. But since then, lawfare has developed both as a term and in terms of actions that states have taken. It's been very much popularized among legal academics, and also particularly in recent years more broadly in popular culture by the blog lawfare, which uses the definition of the use of law as a weapon of conflict and also to refer more broadly to the relationship between law and national security and how U.S. laws involving law and national security have been contested in recent years, particularly since the, the war on terror. I defend lawfare more broadly because of actions in actions that states and particularly China, but also Russia and other adversaries have taken. I define it as the use of law to weaken the adversary's legitimacy or to bolster one's own. The reason I redefine it is because first of all, lawfare is also is often used as part of what China would call media warfare or what the U.S. calls as information operations. It's used very deliberately to support the legitimacy of our own actions and our own will to fight, public support for our actions. The American public and most of our allies and, and partners tend to support military efforts more when they're bolstered and portrayed as legal and legitimate. I also redefine it because the term, in my view, should not be considered pejorative. Because of the association with terrorist groups, non-state actors, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Hamas, the term initially took on a pejorative connotation. And I argue that it, it shouldn't have that because the U.S. and our allies and partners can be using law as a weapon in a way that very much supports what we believe to be a just cause. And I also talk about how it applies inside or outside of armed conflict. So lawfare is no longer just about battlefield exploitation lawfare, but also about proactively filing lawsuits to shape the environment for negotiations or even for future conflict. Mm -hmm. And I also discuss used by the government as part of a broader strategy and also operationalized by the military at both the strategic operational and tactical level. Hmm. Well, so in the paper, you give some examples of how China has specifically deployed a lawfare strategy and how that kind of fits into their broader strategic program. I wonder if you kind of put some meat on the bones, as it were, and talk a little bit about kind of how China has effectively approached lawfare as one of its tools of advancing its political interests. So the primary examples I draw on in the paper are China's battlefield exploitation lawfare really in peacetime 
uh, through its use of a maritime militia in the South China Sea. I also talk about the arbitration that the Philippines filed and won against China in 2016 involving China's encroachment on and building of islands in the South China Sea in Philippine territory. And I also talk about the current litigation that's been going on between the U.S. and Huawei, which involves a strategy on both sides, I think, to delegitimize the the other. And I call that proxy lawfare because the U.S. is very much treating Huawei as a proxy for the Chinese state. I'll talk about each of those a little bit. China's using battlefield battlefield exploitation lawfare in a similar way to the way that non-state actors have used it in the past, except they're using it during peacetime. And what they do is employ a maritime militia, which involves civilian craft and civilian civilians themselves who are effectively on and off the Chinese military payroll because they operate for the Chinese military when they're on their off time, but they also have day jobs as, as civilians. And what they're operating is these fishing boats, except the fishing boats have no nets. They're not doing any fishing and they don't operate the collision signals that are required for safety reasons by the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea and other international conventions. They actually train with and support the Chinese Navy and Coast Guards, but the key here is that they're under the Chinese military chain of command, but not exclusively so, since sometimes they're operating in a civilian capacity. So there's this ambiguity as to whether they're civilians or whether they're actually part of the Chinese military. And what China uses them for is strategies like encroachment. So they surround islands. So some Philippine islands or features in the South China Sea will find themselves effectively surrounded by 95 of these fishing, quote unquote, fishing boats on a given day. So China's really creating facts on the ground saying, hey, we're, we're fishing in these Philippine waters, and China would argue that it's doing so because it has some kind of historic rights or sovereign rights to that territory, even though legally under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, it's part of the, it's part of the Philippines. They also use them for what's known as a cabbage strategy, where there will be a, a row of these fishing boats surrounding an island, and then they're backed up by the Chinese actual Coast Guard, and then they're backed up by Chinese Navy ships. And so suddenly the island finds itself effectively surrounded by the Chinese layers of Chinese military boats. And they're used really for military and intelligence functions. They're conducting reconnaissance and surveillance. They're conducting anti-air missile defense. They are involved in what China calls rights protection missions, which are just creating a Chinese presence in disputed waters and helping to develop artificial islands in, in the South China Sea. China here is wagering that using these mar- this maritime militia, which has plausible deniability as to whether they're, again, civilians or part of the Chinese military itself, will reduce escalatory risk in the South China Sea. And this also creates issues for the United States and its allies if they want to follow the law of war 
in a situation or avoid killing uh, civilians outside of armed conflict in a situation where those fishing vessels come into contact with U.S. or um, or allied military vessels. And this has happened. There have been collisions. There have been near collisions. And it would not look good and potentially not be legal if the U.S. were to, you know, say fire on, in an extreme case, a maritime militia vessel in a way that it would look very different if, and legally be very different if they were to have such a interaction with a Chinese military, an undeniably Chinese military ship. The Philippines-China arbitration that was Philippines filed in 2013 and that uh, and was decided in 2016 is what I call instrumental lawfare, where law was, is being used to achieve or at least help achieve what might other be otherwise be tr- traditionally achieved by kinetic means. So what had been happening was Chinese ships, maritime militia, and otherwise were threatening Chinese, uh, were threatening Filipino personnel and fishermen at, at features in the South China Sea that fell within the Philippines' exclusive economic zone or that Philippines claimed as their territory. China was also building artificial islands. One of them was on Mischief Reef, which falls squarely within the Philippines' exclusive economic zone. And China built this up from an almost underwater territory, uh, underwater feature, to include air uh, airstrips, radomes, hangars, things that looked like it was very much building, building it up for military use, although China denied that it was militarizing these islands. The Philippines were unable to if they even wanted to, confront China militarily over this encroachment onto their territory. So what they did instead was file an arbitration in the Permanent Court of Arbitration in The Hague under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. So the dispute wasn't about sovereignty. It was about China's violations of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. The tribunal, of course, wouldn't have the jurisdiction to determine issues of sovereignty. But the case had tremendous implications for sovereignty because in order to decide on Philippines claims, uh, the court would need to determine what these features were in the South China Sea under UNCLOSE. Were they islands? Were they reefs? Were they rocks? Were they low tide elevations? Because all of these generate different rights, territorial seas, exclusive economic zones, etc., etc. And the Philippines uh, won the arbitration in a sweeping victory, um, far more than the uh, than most observers really anticipated they would. The China did not actually participate in the arbitration, though. Uh, China claims all of this territory in the South China Sea, basically all of the high seas in the middle of the South China Sea, under something called the Nine-Dash Line, which started showing up on Chinese Communist Party maps in 1949. And it argued that it had historic rights to, to this territory and wasn't going to participate in the arbitration as a matter of international law because unclose requires that parties attempt to determine their disputes first 
through negotiations with each other. And also because China had undisputed in its view, historic rights to the area within the nine dash line. But China did something that looked a little suspiciously like they were participating in the arbitration without participating. They released a position paper through their Ministry of Foreign Affairs that looked suspiciously like a legal brief, took the form of a legal brief, and advanced all of the claims that China would have made had it been in the been participating in the permanent court of arbitration. So the court took this very seriously. So it wasn't considering the issue to be um, issue to be uh, the case to be one sided. And the Philippines effectively won. The court held that China had unlawfully interfered with the Philippines sovereign rights, both to um, by both its fishing rights and environmental exploration rights, et cetera, in its exclusive economic zone and continental shelf, that it had caused all kinds of significant environmental damage through its island building, it threatened Philippines personnel, and also not followed these anti-collision regulations that I mentioned before, which really endangered Filipino personnel as well. And of course, they unlawfully aggravated the dispute by doing all of these activities and building more islands while the dispute was going on. The results of the arbitration have been mixed. China, of course, didn't abandon its artificial islands, which would have been a massive, um, which would have been a massive shame, I think, in in the eyes of its public. And its law enforcement vessels and maritime militias continue to not broadcast these collision signals and operate dangerously. But on the other hand, they haven't actually built any new islands, and they've allowed Philippine fishermen access to Scarborough Shoal, which was one of the, even the fish docks there, was one of the major issues in this dispute. China also did something really interesting, right? So they denounced the results of this arbitration as waste paper, effectively, and said it had no legal effect and that it was a violation of international law. But then they launched this massive messaging campaign, including a billboard in Times Square where they played a video five times a day, 24 hours a day for two or three weeks after the arbitration, telling their side of the story and explaining how China had historic rights to everything within the Nine Dash line. And what we've seen since is that the Philippines haven't pushed China to abide by this arbitration after, uh, largely because Duarte was elected um, right around the days before, or two, about two weeks before the results of this arbitration came down. And Duarte has, um, Duarte has um, warmed to China since. But recently, Xi Jinping went to the Philippines in July and offered Duterte an oil and gas deal to abandon the terms of the arbitration. So this is fascinating to me because China is like running scared of the results of this arbitration. It's very harshly warned other countries to not to file claims and not even to reference the terms of decision, the decision in their international legal submissions, say to UN bodies like Indonesia and Malaysia, they've, they've warmed off of this. So they seem to be running scared of this decision that they've denounced as a mere piece of waste paper. They can't just ignore it. So that says to me that this decision had a lot of impact, not necessarily in all of the areas of compliance with the decision, but in terms of the way that 
China perceives its legitimacy or the way that China worries that others might perceive its legitimacy. So, so Jill, I mean, I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on why exactly China has chosen a strategy that emphasizes lawfare, sort of when and why it's been successful and whether the kind of recent less than successful efforts at waging lawfare on China's part might affect their sort of long-term strategy. Sure. So China, first of all, has this idea of, of the free warfare, three warfares that I've talked about before that have very much permeated its military culture. So it has a strong tradition of attempting to influence public opinion and shape it's the international perceptions of and domestic perceptions, and this is very important, of its legitimacy through law and the media. And in a recent article in the Virginia Journal of International Law, China, or Tom Ginsburg and a co-author have really documented how China over the years, and perhaps even going back as far as the 1840s and 1850s, has advanced law as a means to bolster the legitimacy of the ruling party of the uh, within China, and also in terms of modernization. So China has seen adopting Western legal norms as part of modernizing, part of establishing its stature in the international community, and part of being able to compete in the global marketplace. So when China, so China's really tried to do this both by um, beefing up its domestic legal apparatus and emphasizing that the Chinese Communist Party rules based on law and legitimacy, that law and legitimacy um, support its its continued dominance in Chinese politics, but also to bolster its legitimacy overall in the international realm, both in the eyes of the world and the eyes of its people. And some anthropologists and other resources have written a lot about Chinese shame culture and Asian shame culture overall, which is different from the way that we think about shame in the United States, where the uh, where an, a, a perceived derision of one's honor, an attack on one's honor by the international community is more acute than we tend to think of it in the United States. So uh, this is perhaps best exemplified and most popularly ex- uh, uh, exemplified to the West in movies where we, um, and in, in knowledge of Japanese samurai, right, who would commit seppuku or suicide when their honor was disgraced. Many scholars have argued that the same ideas of shame also apply to states when their legitimacy is attacked. So in the U.S., we all the time do things like not participate in the in the international criminal court, and we don't really worry about what that means for our standing so much in the international community. I and many other international legal scholars argue that we should worry about this a lot more than we do. But China, since it's trying to become a global 
player more than it has been. And also because of the way that the Chinese Communist Party has relied on law increasingly in recent years to bolster its own legitimacy needs to care. So when its actions are denounced as illegitimate in an international forum, it is a harder slap in the face than I think we always understand sometimes in Western culture. And China's really pushing back on this. Mm. Well, so to what extent do you think the Chinese deployment of lawfare has been successful? And do you anticipate changes in their lawfare strategy, given what sounds like some recent setbacks? So I think we actually see an escalation of their lawfare strategy. And I talk about this in the paper in terms of what's going on between the U.S. and Huawei, and uh, which I call proxy lawfare, and also in terms of China's institutional lawfare. So to take the second one first, China ha- sees as part of its lawfare strategy as defined in the three warfares, advancing and creating legal rules and institutions. So the U.S. for many, many years has advanced its foreign policy agenda through organizations like the UN, the World Bank, other international institutions. China, rather than funding the, these organizations at more than higher levels than the U.S. has, say, which would have been one strategy, has just said, you know what, U.S. dominates these institutions, we're going to form our own. So they've formed in in the last, say, 15 years or so, the Asian Infrastructure Development Bank and the New Development Bank, which is, the New Development Bank it basically involves the, the BRICS, the um, rising economic powers. Uh, the Asian Infrastructure Development Bank, however, has I think 100 members from all over the world, including the, um, pretty much all of Europe, so many U.S. partners and allies. And China is largely using this to advance its own foreign policy agenda through its One Belt, One Road initiative, which aims to connect it both on land and by sea to the rest of Asia and also Western Europe. So it's really working through these legal institutions that exert a lot of power and soft law to advance its foreign policy agenda. And that so far has been of concern to a lot of economists and foreign policy analysts because it's succeeding in becoming a center for international financial institutions uh, that previously the U.S. has dominated. But what's going on with Huawei is, I think, extremely interesting. And um, there has been... uh, so there have been pushes in a, in a variety of realms back and forth between the U.S. and China in a variety of different um, legal proceedings. So this all started with the enactment of the National Defense Authorization Act of 2019-2020, the NDAA. And a provision of the NDAA said that the U.S. government was barred from contracting with Huawei for any telecommunications equipment. It named not just Huawei, but Huawei, but a number of other Chinese firms as well. And Huawei fought back by filing a lawsuit in U.S. court and hiring a couple of PR firms in the U.S. to promote their side of the case in the court of public opinion as well. Their primary argument was that the ban was unconstitutional. 
because it violated the bill of attainder provision of the U.S. Constitution, a relatively obscure provision that says that it is illegal to legislatively determine guilt and inflict punishment on an identifiable named party without some sort of trial or, well, yes, it specifies the trial. So Huawei argued that not only was this ban unconstitutional, but it also violated due process and separation of powers as well. To most legal analysts, this case is almost laughable. And in fact, a judge did did dismiss the suit just a few weeks ago on February 18th. And so the question is, why would, given their, the unlikelihood of their winning, why did Huawei file this in the first place? And what a lot of analysts have come up with is what Huawei is trying to do is make a mockery of the U.S. legal system. It's trying to say, look, the rule of law in the U.S. isn't so great because the U.S. isn't filing its own laws not even its own laws, but its own constitution, which it holds so dear. And this is, the argument is bolstered by what they've done in another very prominent case, the arrest of China's, um, excuse me, Huawei's chief financial officer and their deputy chairman of their board, also the daughter of Huawei's founder, in on December 6, 2018, in Canada, but she was arrested on behalf of the U.S. And Sabrina Meng, this um, Huawei CFO, has been fighting extradition from Canada. Her arguments have really echoed what Huawei argued in its U.S. dispute. She is saying that she shouldn't be extradited because it would be unconstitutional under Canada's constitution for it to do so, because what she's charged with, which is bank fraud and sanctions of um, or, or violations of sanctions against Iran is was not illegal in Canada. So results of her extradition proceedings are, are pending right now. So Huawei has also filed suits against the Federal Claims Commission and against Verizon recently, which is of course not a U.S. government entity, but a major U.S.-based corporation. So China really seems to be stepping up its lawfare strategy to bolster its own legitimacy, most likely public opinion amongst its own people. But it's also interesting that it is going about this at all, that it's using U.S. courts to, um, to it can be argued anyway, bolster its legitimacy within the U.S. because at least it's trying to resolve these disputes through means that the U.S. public respects U.S. courts. Mm. Well, so Jill, I mean, I wonder if you could reflect on whether sort of the U.S. has historically pursued a lawfare strategy. You know, kind of what, if anything, our lawfare strategy is today and whether there's anything we can learn from the sort of Chinese lawfare strategy in terms of sort of U.S. kind of strategic policy going forward? So it's not that the U.S. has never used law in support of its foreign policy aims, but there is a trend against, there's an intellectual trend against international law in the U.S. government. I mean, we've pulled out of the International Court of Justice. We refuse to participate in the International Criminal Court. John Bolton has most prominently really condemned 
the International Criminal Court considering proceedings against the U.S. based on its actions in Afghanistan. So I, we have not been, I would argue, in large part because of that, as proactive about using international law to advance our foreign policy goals as we could. And at this point, I think we don't have a choice because our adversaries are doing that and doing it. And as I talked about in the paper, it's not just China. Russia, of course, our other adversary, probably secondary to China, is using it as well in its actions in the Arctic, which is something we don't hear about a lot in the news, but something that we're very worried about in U.S. foreign policy. And also in its actions in the Ukraine, Russia's Little Green Men program using contractors in its occupation of the of areas of the Ukraine, Crimea, um, are based supposedly on China's strategy of using Little Blue Men, the maritime militia in the in the South China Sea. So if our adversaries are doing this and our adversaries are thinking about this holistically as part of their strategy, using it to bolster the support and will of their own population and to some degree, they argue successfully anyway, within the international community, we've got to be fighting back. And we can do it better. I'm biased, of course, because I train some of them, but I think we have the best lawyers in the entire world. I think there's support for this idea because so many other countries in the world send their lawyers to be trained here because we have the best law schools in the world. Again, bias there as well. But we're, there's, there's no reason we should be afraid of using law and international law to advance our foreign policy strategy when we can do it better than anybody else. Not that we're always going to win, but I think we can, we can do it better. And if that saves lives by achieving or forestalling kinetic, what we would otherwise need to do kinetically through traditional military means, then that's great. I care about my students a lot. I think lawfare is a lot less bloody than conventional warfare. So I'd like to see more of it from a practical perspective that way, fewer resources expended as well. So the first thing I think needs to be done is the creation of a lawfare office. And this in itself, creation of an office is not a strategy, of course, but part of the reason we haven't used lawfare as holistically as we could in U.S. foreign policy is that no one owns it, right? So we see the Justice Department creating an isolated strategy of lawfare and its litigation against Huawei. It's in, it also recently indicted uh, the company itself, by the way. Um, but we don't see the Justice Department coordinating as closely with, say, the State Department's action statement supporting the Philippines-China arbitration or encouraging tacitly or explicitly our allies and partners to engage in lawfare actions against our adversaries, etc. We also don't see the military engaged with, is engaged with this as we should, I argue. And I'll add that NATO is particularly concerned about this and has an office devoted to lawfare itself, which they call legal operations. So our allies and partners are are more concerned about this than we are. And we would, of course, be wise to work with them on any initiative that can help support our 
military efforts and ideally forestall some of them. Lawfare can also be used to the extent it is used to, as part of information operations, to bolster public opinion and, and public support. It can be incorporated at the at the strategic, operational, and tactical level within military efforts themselves. And all of this needs to be coordinated through through the government. So there needs to be an office somewhere. I'm not going to get into the question of who would own it, um, but it needs to provide a centralized place for coordination with all of the different agencies, engage in training and expert education, provide expertise, coordinate with military planning, coordinate with our partners and allies, and engage in what I like to call legal preparation of, of the battlefield. So setting the terms, setting the conditions for military actions when appropriate. And it can also pre-active, proactively work to identify circumstances where the U.S. can bolster its legal efforts by creating facts on the ground for their future advantage, provide legal alternatives like filing lawsuits like the Philippines China arbitration and filing arbitrations to avoid potential kinetic disputes or set the terms for negotiation. And it can also identify more opportunities for proxy lawfare of the type that we're currently using against Huawei. Maybe there are other Chinese corporations we should be targeting somehow through legislation or through legal, through legal cases. So I think there's a lot we can be doing offensively and defensively that, that we're not doing, and it would support all of our foreign policy objectives to do so. Great. Well, Jill, thanks so much for coming on the show and talking about this fascinating issue. I really hope that the U.S. lawfare strategy kind of steps up a little bit uh, in relation to to current current events. Thank you. I hope I very much hope so too. And to the extent that this article can help move the ball forward on that, I'm really excited about it. <laughs> There was a time when China hated us Chairman Mao was not a fan In order to improve communications America needed a special man President Nixon broke down the Great Wall Of ill between the nations that day Mao wasn't happy but we all talked it out Written out in the Shanghai communique He opened trade, unified the land And it was all started by just one man with Kissinger's help he bridged America to be friendly with China